0: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. We're here again. <laughs> it's a relatively quiet time in the snooker world. Northern Ireland Open qualifiers have been on this week, uh, and uh, they have. Uh, by the time you hear this, they'll be over, and then there'll be very little happening until the uh, the mixed doubles and the British Open. But we're not going to go on about that again. Uh, I spoke about that last week. Uh, there is other action going on, and we must say congratulations to Liam Davis from Wales, who has uh, completed a remarkable treble in the IBSF. World Junior events, he's won all three of them. He's won the World Under-16s, the World Under-18s, and the World Under-21s. So what an extraordinary achievement to win all three. It's never happened before. Clearly a great talent, and of course we saw him, he played in the World Championship qualifying last season. Very, very talented uh, young man from a hotbed, of course, in Wales. My only hope, really, for him is that people don't put too much pressure on him. We don't want to hear he's a definite future world champion and all that stuff. None of that stuff ever helps. Particularly for a young lad who, you know, is already excited about potentially turning professional. Just let him develop at his own pace. But clearly he's one to watch. Uh, Another young Welsh player, Dylan Emery's on at the moment and he's doing pretty well so far. And uh, Jackson Page, of course, got to the second round at the Crucible. Um, So it seems Welsh snooker. You know, people say, oh, there's no young talent coming through. Not true. Clearly there is. And Liam Davis, he's clearly one to watch. But as I say, let's not put too much pressure on him by getting in his ear about what he's going to achieve because ultimately that's going to be up to him but clearly one to watch and also um, what's happening at the moment in Seattle the US Women's Open is taking place first big women's event in America um, in the Ox Billiards Club which looks a fantastic place I know Judd Trump did an exhibition there and uh, yeah, it's um, it's happening now they are actually streaming it I believe our, our dear friend David Burney uh, he's, he's doing some commentary, and uh, another friend of the podcast, Matt Hewitt, he's over there as well, the media officer of the Women's uh, World Snooker. So that's great. They've got uh, some sponsorship from Microsoft, um, and you know, it, it's it's a great thing I think to have an international event somewhere like America. We'd love a professional tournament there at some point, of course. Um, now it's been a bumper week uh, for uh, emails. I'll rephrase that. We've had three, so <laughs> it's not, but they're all crackers. Actually, they're all really good. Uh, and we start. Uh, David Grace, snooker professional. Now, last last week, the aforementioned David Burney wrote in about essentially brushing tables and what what the correct procedure was. And I, I offered no help at all because it's not an area of my expertise, uh, like most areas. But anyway, David Grace, of course, from the Northern Snooker Centre as well. He's well versed in all this, so he's actually answered some of these points that uh, that David made. And we're gonna, I'm just gonna read them out here. So. One of the questions that uh, David asked was, uh, in terms of brushing, do you brush after every session? David Gray says, I won't try and impersonate David because that would be offensive, but he says, once a day is sufficient for a club table. At tour events, the tables are cleaned after every match and also at the interval in longer matches. Next question, do we brush in one long sweep down the table or multiple overlapping little sweeps? David writes, ideally the latter followed by the former is what the table fitters on tour do. So the latter would be multiple overlapping little sweeps, And the former is one long sweep down the table. Next question. As well, have you heard to brush the table from the top to the bulk every once in a while, as long as you have a blocker to push down the nap afterwards? David writes, I can't see how this would benefit the table in any way. You should always brush in the direction of the nap, bulk to black end. Next question. How often do you block the table? What is a blocker? David writes, a block is just a piece of wood covered with bays. Snooker cloth. It's used to settle the nap of the cloth after brushing. Always block from bulk to black end. Next question. See how helpful this is. This is like uh, Citizens Advice Bureau. You know, so At last, after seven years, we're doing something useful. <laughs> anyway, uh, it continues. As well, How often should you iron the table? David writes, this depends on usage and how long the cloth will be on any given table. Ironing will settle the nap further still and should make the table run faster. But over time, ironing can wear out the cloth faster, in my opinion. The uh, penultimate question, if you didn't have a snooker table iron, can you use a household one? And if so, what setting would you put it at? I heard wool is the best setting, but am I wrong? Is there a better setting for a household iron? David writes, I wouldn't recommend a household iron, mainly because of the steam. Any moisture is bad for the cloth. The final question, how often should you vacuum a table? Would doing too much vacuuming pull the cloth off the slate? As well, what's the best attachment for a vacuum to clean the tables? David Grace replies to that, again, not recommended. If you brush daily, including under the cushions, that should be sufficient. He says, I hope this helps. Well, it certainly does. I mean, what a, what a player there, literally a player. But what a, what a great thing to do to, um, to answer David's question. So hopefully that's helpful, not only to David Burney but anyone else who's uh, looking to uh, learn about the upkeep of a table. Uh, we move on. Dave Tyndall, who does a lot of heavy lifting, it's got to be said on this podcast, and he's do, do, done some more here. Now, last week, I, I, I mentioned the extraordinary revelation that uh, Kirk Stevens and Belinda Carlisle share an actual birthday, not only the, the day, but the year as well. Uh, and Dave writes, after you revealed the extraordinary link between Kirk Stevens and Belinda Carlisle in last, last week's podcast, I inevitably disappeared down a rabbit hole looking at when snooker players and singers shared the same birthday. I've come up for air now and I thought I'd share. So we have. okay. so these are the pop stars and snooker players who share a birthday. 13th of January. Slugs from Madness and Stephen Hendry. 5th of May. Adele and David Grace. You see, David Grace again gets a mention. Uh, 7th of July. Ringo Starr and Billy (laughs) Snatton. Together at last. Uh, 29th of August. Michael Jackson and Joe Swale. 26th of November. Tina Turner and Sanderson Lamb. 5th of December, Little Richard and Ronnie O'Sullivan. If we add in Belinda Carlisle and Kirk Stevens, we're close to having an eight-team eight team line-up for a mythical pairs event. A couple of years ago, I'd have recreated it on my 6x3 table at home, but unfortunately, its legs are now more wobbly than Elvis Presley's. Talking of Elvis, he shares the same birthday as Marco Fu, so there we go, we have our eight teams. It's a great lineup, although you have to fill for Rodney Goggins, who has to settle for being first reserve, despite sharing a birthday with both Aretha Franklin and Elton John. Thank you, Dave. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the pairings there, I don't know. I, you, look, you look at those pairings, I mean, Little Richard and Ronnie O'Sullivan, there's a, a, a couple of uh, eccentrics. <laughs> uh, Suggs and Stephen Hendry, that's quite a... I'd say Suggs has probably played a bit of snooker down the years. You could imagine him in his youth in snooker clubs, maybe. Uh, Michael Jackson and Joe Swale. I think Joe Swale will be doing the heavy lifting there. Tina Turner and Sanderson Lamb, I'm not sure about that, I, 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 I'm not sure Snooker's featured much in Tina Turner's life. But anyway, that's uh, that's the that's the pairings, if that event, uh, I say if it ever happens, of course that's, that's lunacy to suggest it would. But anyway, that, that, thank you Dave for doing that research, which as he pointed out at the end, took bloody ages to do. Now it occurs to me, Blanche Dubois, let's mention her, she's a character from Streetcar Named Desire, by Tennessee Williams and uh, her famous line is that I've always depended on the kindness of strangers well here on this podcast I depend on the kindness of our regulars to email in otherwise there's no show and uh, our next email is from James Cook our friend in America uh, who writes this regarding the most recent podcast where you referenced the current fallow period for snooker events it got me wondering whose job is it to put the tournaments on and related to that can you clarify the roles of each of the organisations involved in the game WST, WPBSA, Matrim, etc. And where, if anywhere, do the Q Sports Associations fit in? As ever, keep up the good podcast work. I hope the recent play, Banana Crabtree Simon, performances went well. Well, they did. Thank you for mentioning that in Edinburgh. Uh, We we had uh, quite a nice evening with uh, Alan McManus. Scott Donaldson came and and the whole thing went quite well. So anyway, but uh, on your substantive point... Uh yeah okay it's a good point this because we hear a lot people say that world snooker tour are the governing body of snooker they're not actually the WPBSA is the governing body and they have the various governance roles in terms of keepers of the rules and regulations the disciplinary side of snooker uh, the development of the game uh grassroots amateur snooker is in their purview if i can use that word they you know they do coaching they Bring on referees All that sort of stuff So the WPBSA Is the governing body However They also have (laughs) And this is where It gets a little complicated The WPBSA Have A stake In World Snooker Tour World Snooker Tour Is the commercial entity That is charged with Exploiting the game's Commercial rights So they Are the custodians Of the rights So they deal with Broadcast contracts They deal with sponsorship And it is World Snooker Tour's job To put on Tournaments So they run the professional snooker tour, uh, and they work with sometimes independent promoters, and they sanction events. But they are in charge of the professional tour and all the associated commercial rights. Now, where do Matchroom fit in? Well, World Snooker—it's World Snooker Limited. Uh, they are owned by a holding company called World Snooker Holding. There'll be questions on this at the end, so do follow it. Okay, so World Snooker Holding essentially uh they they are controlled by uh, Matchroom okay so matchroom control World snooker holding who control World snooker limited so it's a kind of russian dolls thing so matchroom overall runs the sport but within that you have World snooker tour and you have the wpbsa as the the governance side of it uh and the wpbsa also owns a stake In World Snooker Holding I don't know whether this is really easy to follow or impossible But that's essentially it So it's like a sort of pyramid You have Matchroom as the overall company And within that you have World Snooker uh, Holding And within that you have World Snooker Limited Okay And that is run essentially uh, The whole operation is run by Matchroom Um, So Barry Hearn essentially took over the game's commercial rights in 2010 and this new world snooker limited sort of side of things was formed um it's a separate entity from matchroom but it's at the same time owned by them it's a, it's it's a strange relationship in some ways it's a bit incestuous i suppose you have to say um it's funny, World Snooker put a tweet up this week um, saying, if something along the lines of, that you know, on the World Snooker tour, you've got to remember you're part of a big family. And I thought, yeah, in a lot of people's cases, they're part of the same family, literally. But anyway, um, but that's it, essentially. So the WPSA are the governance side, uh, World Snooker tour, run the professional tour and the association, associated commercial uh, rights. But within the sort of umbrella of it all, matrim sport, Ultimately, own world snooker. Uh, it all kind of fits in together, and to be fair, it's a it's a system that does actually work well. Uh, Jason Ferguson from the WPBA, you know, he's very involved in actually sourcing um, places where there might be interesting tournaments, and goes out to do good work on that on that side of it. But ultimately, world snooker tour, as the name suggests, run the world snooker tour. This season, there are 16 world-ranking events on the calendar as it stands right now. Uh, 13 of those are open to all-tour players, and then there's three that are limited fields, that the player series, uh, 32, 16, 8, as people are aware, goes, goes down on. So, 16 events. Now, I say that because, you know, looking at some sort of publicity and, and some of the things players have been saying lately, you'd think we were down to sort of 7 or 8. 16 is still a lot, considering we've lost the 5 in China. Of course, there were two new ones added last season: the British Open and the Turkish Masters. Um, Mark Allen did an interview with Phil Hague in the Metro, um, where he made some good points, I think, about the way the tour is sort of the qualifiers are being stretched out and things I've said before they're being stretched out to make it look like there's more snooker than there actually is. Um, which I think, and also he said that you know there's concern that the, the, uh, the situation, which is fair enough, but he did make me laugh a little when he said that. uh, There's a concern uh, that that people are not happy. Players are not happy. Well, listen, I've covered snooker for 25 years, and I can assure you, in all that time, players have never been happy. (laughs) You go in the players' room, you know, you're complaining about, you know, we we don't want to go to China, but now they're not going to China, they do want to go to China. They're not happy with the rankings, they're not happy with the prize money, they're not happy with the venues, they're not happy with the tables. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, there's a lot, a long list of complaints, and and uh, and I say that as a journalist because that's the other room in the building where there's loads of moaning, the, the press room. <laughs> but anyway, he uh, did make some good points as well, I think. And uh, as, I mean, I won't re- reheat what I said last week, but there is a sort of feeling that things have plateaued. It can go the other way, though. I know they're looking at uh, a few places, Malta, Bulgaria, have uh, been mentioned as places where we could still have events this season. So all, all is not uh, all is not lost by any means. But anyway, that's. Uh, that's that. Thank you to uh, the emails. Now we also had uh, Kerry Richards. Uh, I think uh, wrote in a few weeks ago, and, and it was one of the emails that fell by the wayside. I did, I did, uh, I did um, attempt to find this, and indeed I did find it. So if you just bear with me. See, there's other podcasts these days, and they? they're very professional. But uh, you know, this ramshackle approach, I think people enjoy. Uh, ah, yes, here we are. Now I, I thought I'd read this out actually, but from your email, Kerry, it seems I didn't. He writes with reference to this season's calendar. It's very disappointed to note that for the first time ever, the Welsh Open will not be held in South Wales. The south of our country is the traditional player base for the game, and by definition, I'd argue the supporter base too. Maybe it's my South Walian bias showing through, but along with a sizeable group of friends, I've attended the event for many years and always felt that, due to the various venues used in Cardiff and Newport, with the ICC at the Celtic Manor this year being the best, it was a special tournament in its own right and always well supported reference to my email, you kindly read out last year on tournament venue hotspots and cold spots, with nothing in Cheltenham again, and never anything in around Bristol, South Wales must be one of the game's biggest traditional strongholds that's now furthest away from any tournament in Britain. I can speak for our group when saying we're gutted our annual pilgrimage to the Welsh Open won't be taking place next year, unlike World Snooker's schedule planners. Keep up the good work with the podcast. Well, uh, of course there is going to be something in Cheltenham. Uh, the World Grand Prix is going back there in January. I get your point. I mean, you know, the Welsh Open has always been very passionately supported in South Wales. Clandidno is a nice venue. It's a nice town. Uh, that's where it's going to be this season. I think ideally you'd have a tournament in Clandidno and one in South Wales. Um, but I, I get your point. I'm not. I'm not, uh, I'm not. privy to the exact reasons it's left uh, that part of the world. I imagine cost is one. I do think. Uh, I think I'm right in saying Jason Ferguson. May have been on Talking Snooker, I can't remember, but he did make the point that they, the ICC last year, they it was there was nothing else going on there. Whereas it's hard to because it's a big place, it's hard to book it when there might be a concert there or something when you can hear, you know, say the Red Hot Chili Peppers tonight na- to name a contemporary band, <laughs> are playing in the next room. Clearly, that's not ideal if you've got a snooker tournament on. So there are those sort of issues as well. But I mean, there are other venues um, where. Uh, where uh, they, they, you know, they could have it in South Wales. The Newport Centre, I believe, has been knocked down. Paul Collier was telling me, uh, he went, to, he got his COVID jab there, which was uh, apt, really, because a lot of people got the needle there over the years. Uh, but the Newport Centre, Ronnie O'Sullivan's favourite venue in Wales, <laughs> uh, and uh, host of many great matches and finals in the Welsh Open. But anyway, that's gone now, and I think the the, the venue in Cardiff is being knocked down as well. Um, They're looking at Swansea, I believe. They're looking at Swansea. So all is not lost in South Wales, but uh, for this season, it will be in Clendidna. Now, as promised last week, uh, the remainder of this podcast, I'm going to be looking at Steve Davis's six world titles because I've already ranked Ronnie and Sullivan seven and Stephen Hendry seven, and I think uh, it's only right that we now look at the man that came before them who set the standards in the 1980s, Steve Davis. I have to say this was the hardest of of the three, um Steve Davis <laughs> broke through of course in the early 80s he won the UK championship and he very quickly became the best thing the game had ever seen not only just his his will to win but his professionalism as well he really changed snooker he made it you know it's rightly said uh, that Alex Higgins brought a working class audience to snooker that's true but Steve Davis brought a middle class audience because he was clean cut Nans loved Steve Davis, you know, he was a nice boy, you know, doing a good job, he was someone to look up to, Um, he was respectable, he brought respectability to snooker, and of course that brought a kind of respectable uh, group of sponsors, brought money to the sport, it was something that respectable society suddenly liked, and families went, and women went, and it became mainstream for that reason, it was no longer actually just a kind of... uh, you know, uh, just a working class pursuit. It was it was something the whole country could enjoy. When I say whole country, I mean Britain, of course, at that time. But ranking Steve's wins, it was difficult. I mean, obviously, the final he's most known for was the one he lost. I guess 1985, because that's the most famous match ever. Here's the thing: Steve had very few close matches. You look back at the at the six at the six um, world titles he won. There were no deciders. There were only a couple of matches that were you could call close, i.e., know a couple of frames in it. He used to batter people. Basically, that's that's the truth. He used to batter people, and for that reason, it's quite hard to pick between tournaments. But it's just a bit of fun, and you know we're not we're not on, we're not up before a jury. This is all just just passing the time. So I have done my best to look through it all, and here is here we go. So we're going from six to one. Number six. I'm going to say 1984. And the reason for that is that is the one final that he ultimately won that he looked like he could lose. Of course, he had a big lead over Jimmy White, who was new on the scene, very exciting then. Led 16-12 in the final, Davis. Only won 18-16. And Jimmy had a chance to level it up. That penultimate frame... Well, actually, sorry, the last frame, I should say, was was pretty close. Um, So Steve Davis, uh, that was one he could have lost. Um, And, of course... A year later, he did, but I mean, earlier in that tournament, he well, these are the he won ten three, thirteen five, thirteen ten against Terry Griffiths. That was uh, sort of the closest match on the way to the final sixteen nine. So people didn't really threaten to beat him. Jimmy White could have done that year. It was a very exciting final at the end of it because it's all on YouTube, of course now. MGT Snooker and these people they they put up these videos, uh, brilliant uh, service. They 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 do the game. And the original presentation is there, and at the end, David Vine is in the studio, I think with, well, certainly Willie Thorne's there, and I think John Spencer, maybe Rex Williams. Anyway, they sat there with a plate of sandwiches, <laughs> different times, and David Vine the, he signs off saying, so this is 1984, okay, and he signs off saying, uh, well, that was such an exciting final, next year's will have to be something really special to beat it. Well, next year's is 1985, which, <laughs> which of course was something special. Number five, I've gone for 1988. Uh, He beat Terry Griffiths in the final. But again, on the the way to the final, well, he won 10-8 first round against John Virgo. That's the closest anyone got to him. Then it was a 13-1 against Mike Hallett, 13-4 against Tony Drago. So a couple of real wallopings in the semis he beat Cliff Thorburn, 16-8. Against Terry in the final, it was interesting. He won the first session, uh, 5-2, played seven frames. And then Terry won the second session, Pretty comfortably, so it was eight all overnight. And of course, Davis has already lost, you know, a couple of finals that, you know, people sort of felt he was going to win to Dennis Taylor and Joe Johnson. And he said that he he got up early that morning. It would have been bank holiday Monday morning, and went for a walk around Sheffield to clear his head and just kind of remind himself that actually he could play the game. That if he was feeling pressure, that was a good thing because it's a big match. And to just focus on the positives. And he did that and he won pretty comfortably after that 18-11. I mean, if you look at the second day, he actually wins that 10-3. So he sort of motored away. Um, this was it, sort of in the middle of his imperious phase. 1988, he'd won the Masters, which was never a tournament he particularly targeted because he targeted the ranking events, you know, face facts, triple crowners, but that's true. Um, but he, he won the Masters that year. He'd, he'd um, actually Did complete the triple crown, didn't he? Because he won the UK Championship in 87 at the end of that year and then the Masters and the World. Um, but he was winning so many tournaments. I think he won more tournaments in 88 than any other year. I think I'm right in saying that. So, yeah, this was the, this was the time when he sort of bestrode the snooker world. And as I say, people just didn't get, uh, didn't get close to him. Uh, fourth position, I've gone for 991. Obviously, this was the breakthrough winning the World Championship and the debut win obviously is always significant because until you win it the first time, you never know if you can. Uh, you look at his route to the final, it was very tough actually. You had Jimmy White uh, to qualify. Um, was that to qualify or was that first round? Anyway, I think that was first round, wasn't it? I uh, maybe should have looked this up beforehand. Yeah, first round he beat Jimmy White 10 8. Uh, then he beat Alex Higgins 13 Terry Griffiths 13 9. Cliff Thorburn 16 10. So he's playing, you know, proper players in every round, but again, they didn't get. Close to him. Nobody, okay, Jimmy did in the first round, but after that, didn't get close to him. He led 6 0 against Doug Mountjoy in the final, and that lead, it was narrowed, but uh, I think it went 12 10, but anyway, it stayed at the end, 6 frames, 18 12. Mountjoy was a very, very good player. Um, of course, already Masters and UK champion by that point. Um, so Steve Davis, Who'd already won the UK championship? Suddenly, he was the new sort of British sporting superstar. At that point, you know, snooker had made a big stride into the lives of the the public on on television, and he, as I say, was the perfect figure to take it forward. And uh, what a gift, really, to the sport. So that was uh, number four. Number three, I've gone for nineteen eighty seven. I think this was a significant win because, of course, he'd lost the previous two finals. Um, he'd lost to Dennis. He'd lost to Joe. He played Joe again, and this was. Uh, Got quite close this final. Davis led going into the last session 14-10. Joe won the first three frames. So now it's 14-13 and all the memories and all the sort of the bad memories really coming back uh, to haunt him. But he pulled away again to win 18-14. It was, it was a tough old match that Joe uh, pushed him. But again, no one else really pushed him. 10-7 round 1. Then we had 13-4, 13-5. 1611. So again, it's a, it's the same kind of pattern. No one really getting that close to him. But even so, David still had to get over the the disappointments of the of the previous couple of years, and he did that in style. So we've got two left, and in number two, second position. I've gone for 1983. Uh, this was a, another walloping. It was a session to spare in the final uh, 18186 against Cliff Thorburn. Ten four 4 round one. 13-11 Dennis Taylor. That was the closest anyone got to him in the second round. And then 13-5, 16-5 five, five against Alex Higgins in the semis. Of course, Cliff had had a, a, the opposite. Cliff Thorburn had, uh, had, had real close matches every round. He had uh, three deciders in a row against Griffiths, Kirk Stevens, Tony Knowles. So, obviously, he was lacking a bit of energy. Even someone as determined as him, him was lacking a bit of energy. But, again, it just underscored that Steve didn't just win these tournaments, he absolutely won them at a canter. And that is certainly true of the last uh, World Final, which is number one, of course. 1989, this is the last one he won, but my word, he won it in style. You look back at the matches again, they were all runaways. 10-5, 13-3, 13-3 again, so two session to spares in a row. 16-9 16-9 against Stephen Hendry in the semis, and then 18-3 against John Parrott, another session to spare final. Um, so just a series of, you know, comfortable wins. Uh, he lost what was it, 23 frames in the whole tournament. Amazing, really. And he was so dominant, particularly against a player like Parrott, who you know was breaking through at that point. He won the European Open, and he was breaking through as a top player. Hendry had already, you know, would won the Masters that year, and he beat him in the semis. Uh, Parrot Jimmy White, of course, was very much uh, at the top of his game around that point. He was beating these guys easily. And you thought, well, this is just going to carry on into the 90s. He could get to 10 world titles. But in fact, he was never in the final again. Um, and interestingly, and Clive uh, wrote about this at the time, interestingly, he was telling people privately, Steve, that he felt that his game actually was declining a little bit and he was a little bit concerned That he'd lost a little bit of edge Now you look at those results and think how can you think that But obviously he would know better than anyone Um, And something maybe changed I don't know He'd equaled the Ray Reardon record At that point We entered a new decade with a new champion In Stephen Hendry And Davis got to Certainly one more semi-final there Possibly a couple I think But anyway He started in the mid-90s to decline a little bit and he had a few last hurrahs, including that, that win over John Higgins in 2010, which was incredible, very memorable. But, um, 89 was his last win. Uh, but what a rain, what a rain. And, um, anyway, that, that's my order of things. I'll repeat it for you. 6,984, 5,988, 4,981, 3,987, 2,983, and one nineteen eighty nine. That was the, uh, what seemed like the perfect Set of results, but as I say, he didn't win it again after that. Of course, feel free to point out uh, where the order is wrong and where how you would have it, and any comments on any of that. You are more than welcome to contact contact us, SnookerScene Podcast at mail dot com. That's SnookerScene at mail dot com. We should send our best wishes, by the way, to another multi champion, Mark Selby, who uh, has revealed that. Uh, and this is a becoming increasingly common problem, it seems for snooker players. He's got neck trouble. Now, he's had this before, but he had a scan in the week and uh, he's got uh, a bulging disc at the top of his spine. Ricky Walden had one, I think, at the base of his spine, which really affected him. Of course, Sean Murphy's had his problems, Anthony Hamilton. It can't be coincidence that these guys have spent, well, most of their lives basically bending over tables. It must have had an effect um, on their health, obviously Mark has had a great career and it's nowhere near over so hopefully he can come through this and, and as the season continues uh, it's not as much of a problem but he's having physio and uh, yeah he, he, he was in trouble in Germany he said he was in discomfort there um, hopefully that will uh, be resolved and, and he can uh, play pain free because we've seen of course Ricky Walden come through it and he had, a great, he had a great season last season um, and Sean Murphy as well seems to be certainly better than he was in terms of his health, well, I think we'll wrap up there There's no point pretending this has been a vintage episode. It hasn't been, but anyway, we've got through it and um, we are uh, proud members of the sports social network. Uh, check out the little podcast. I'm sure they're really happy to have us and uh, yes, as I say, you can contact us snookeringcast at mail dot com Podcast at mail dot com any issues that you feel should be discussed uh, well now is your chance because <laughs> let's be honest there's nothing happening right now and uh, it's a shame I mean uh, one thing Mark Allen said which again I agree with in that interview was that uh, the six reds business I mean that tournament is not happening right but it's still on the calendar players have not been told officially that it's off even though it's supposed to start on September the 5th so you know it, it, that's not great it's only a week away um, the tournament's not on it might be on later hopefully in the season uh, but it's not going to be happening that week um staff have been told, broadcasters have been told. So the players really should have been told officially. And it's little things like that. I can understand why that annoys players, because, you know, they're trying to manage their lives. You know, they're trying to manage for example, if they've got to fly to Thailand for a week, they may have to arrange childcare, they may have to arrange other things in their life, um, because they're gonna be away. Or there might be things they can do if they don't go away. So they might be able to book exhibitions. That some of the players that work as coaches now, um, they can arrange that. So this is why you know their the itineraries are important, and I do feel that that is an area that could be improved to a degree. We're, we're living in incer- uncertain times, and, and the World Snooker Tour calendar is not immune to that. Uh, this Hong Kong event, you know, is interesting because it, it's well, it's not a prototype, but it could be something that you could look at as a possible way of getting tournaments back safely in China. Um, obviously it's only an eight player event so it's easier to handle it is a little bit odd though they're playing in a, in a bubble environment so they're they've got to go to the hotel and then to the venue on a bus and they can't kind of go anywhere else or, and you know, they've got to stay in that bubble but it was pointed out and I do tend to agree with this there's going to be a live audience of thousands of people I mean they're actually saying it could be the biggest ever audience they're not in the bubble so, <laughs> so the players are in a big room full of thousands of people that bubble I understand why it's there it's It seems to be for show more than anything. But I'm not quite sure what difference it's going to make, really, if you're letting in thousands of people who are not part of this. But anyway, glad the event's on it. should be really, really good. Um, So there we are. Uh, This time next week, Liz Truss will be Prime Minister. (laughs) What a time to be alive. What a time to be alive. Um, Yeah, that's it. See you next week for now. Goodbye, bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.